Welcome to the sermon podcast for the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. This fall, we are studying one of the most challenging and difficult to understand books of the whole Bible, Revelation. But what we will find as we study this book is that God is reframing our reality through what he teaches us in it. If you're in town and would like to join us in person, our services are at 8.30 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings at 3410 Granny White Pike, Nashville, Tennessee. You can look to open your Bibles or pull out your devices. We are in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And uh, my friend Lauren is going to read the text for us today. So Revelation 2, 12 to 17. Okay, the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has this sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Lord, what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, there were some hard words in there, and she nailed them. So, Amazing. Um, April 23rd, 2006, early in the morning, a young man named Aaron Ralston headed out for a day of hiking and climbing in South Central Utah. Uh, He left with a small backpack that had about a liter of water, two burritos. Uh, Who takes burritos hiking? I don't know, but that's what it was. And some chocolate. Uh, He did not bring a cell phone because there wasn't going to be cell service where he was headed uh, anyway, but he did have a video camera with him. Uh, He parked his car, hiked into the the area that he was going to hike and climb, and as he was getting down into a slot canyon called Blue John Canyon, and a slot canyon is exactly what it sounds like. It's a canyon in the rock that's deep and narrow and long, just like a slot. Uh, He was lowering himself down on a about an 800-pound boulder that was wedged between the walls of the canyon. And as he began to lower himself down, that boulder became unlodged. And he fell to the bottom of the slot canyon with just enough time to put his arms up in defense of the boulder that was coming down on top of him. And it lodged itself again between the walls of the canyon before it crushed him. But when it did, it trapped his right arm between the boulder and the wall of the canyon. Uh, Now, this story was widely reported uh, when it happened. Uh, He wrote an autobiography called Between a Rock and a Hard Place, (laughs) which is either the lamest or the most amazing title for a story in the history of stories. Uh, There was a major motion picture uh, starring James Franco called 127 Hours. So my guess is some of you, at least in this room, know how this story ended, and so... I'm sorry, we're going to tell the rest of it. Um, He spent four days and nights there, uh, trapped 
with his arm lodged between that boulder and the wall of the canyon, went through all his food, went through all his water. Um, At first, he tried to chip away at the rock using a multi-tool that he had in his backpack. Uh, He tried to fashion a pulley system to somehow lift the rock, couldn't make that happen. And then eventually, he tried to start to make peace with the fact that this was where he was going to die. Uh, On the morning of the fifth day, he had lost 40 pounds by this point. Uh, He made the famous decision to sever his own arm. And I'm not going to go into details this morning because, like, I can see people squirming already. Um, And, like, I got a little bit squeamish just reading up on this uh, for the sake of telling this story. But big picture-wise, he had to make his own tourniquet. He had to break both of his own arm bones. And then he used that cheap multi-tool, and it took an hour. And when he was finished, he had to climb out of the canyon. He had to rappel down a 65-foot cliff and then hike eight miles back to his car where a family vacationing from the Netherlands found him and called for help. Half of you right now are like, I should not have come to church today. (laughs) And how in the world did this man get ordained, right? I I totally get that. So I don't want to dwell on it because um, like that's not, my point is not to gross you out. People fainted in the movie theaters watching the movie. I'm not trying to get anyone to faint this morning. But I spent a decent amount of time thinking to myself, could I have done what he did? I don't like blood, especially my own. I love my arms. I love both of them. And I am not sure I would be able to do what he did. And I wonder, like, would you be able to do what he did? I, I hope... I pray to God none of us ever has to find out. What is so shocking? What is so unsettling about that story? What is so, like, revolting about that story? Besides the gore. It goes against every fiber of our being. It it is just everything in our head, our heart, our soul, everything says don't hurt yourself. Don't inflict pain on yourself. Don't... Don't sacrifice your limbs. So how in the world was he able to do, Aaron Ralston able to do what he did? He was playing a longer game. That's the answer. He was playing a longer game than the pain that was right in front of him. The potential, the the love of his friends and family, the potential for what the rest of his life might look like, the opportunity to live and not die, all of those were a longer, more important game than the immediate pain, suffering, and sacrifice that was right in front of him. And so he was able to do something that most of us can't even wrap our minds around because he was playing the longer game. And here's the deal, if I can just bring it to our, our neighborhood this morning. For those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, the call of Jesus Christ on our lives is to live a life of sacrifice. It is to live a life of really suffering. There, there are, we could just spend a ton of time looking at scriptures that, that more or less tell us, uh, if you decide to follow Jesus with your life, it probably is not going to get easier. In fact, it might get harder. The call of Jesus is the call to a life of sacrifice and suffering. It is a call to lay down our lives, and we need to own that for those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ this morning. If you are here this morning and you would not call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are so glad that you are here. And this is not the kind of message you preach to grow a bunch of people to get in, to come into your church. 
But this is like, consider this just like, this is the really real. If you follow Jesus with your life, the call is to sacrifice and suffering, and there's no way around that. And here it is. How can we possibly do that? Because we're playing a longer game. Because, and if you were with us a couple weeks ago, as we kicked off this series that we're in Revelation today, because we live as followers of Jesus Christ with a vision of the shore. And if you are playing a longer game, just like Aaron Ralston in Blue John Canyon in South Central Utah 17 years ago, or whatever it was, I don't know what the math is, he had a vision for something greater than the pain and suffering that was right in front of him, and so he was able to get through something that most of us would think unthinkable because he had a vision of the shore. And I think that's exactly what we're going to get in the text that we look at today. So we are in uh, the third week of our fall series in the book of Revelation. And as we have set up over these last couple of weeks, the book of Revelation feels like this big, bad, scary, overwhelming blood and war and annihilation and apocalypse and serpents and dragons. And it's like, what could this book possibly have to do with me? And what we are going to argue for the next 14 weeks or however much longer we're in this is that what seems like it is so unreal, the book of Revelation, is actually the really real. That the message of the book of the Revelation is the same as the message of the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the Bible as a whole, and that is this, that there are two kingdoms that are at war right now. There's the kingdom of this world and there's the kingdom of God. And one day, the kingdom of God is going to fully and finally overtake the kingdom of the world and Jesus will come back and make all things right. But in the meantime, there is a war going on that we are a part of. And even though we can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it sometimes, it is the really real. And Revelation is the, the picture painted for us of what is really happening right now and what is really going to happen in the future. And what we said is that we find in chapters two and three of Revelation, there are messages to churches. So it's one letter written to seven churches. But as we said, the the number seven in the Bible and particularly in the book of Revelation is very important because it's the number of completion, fullness, perfection. And so while this was a real letter written by a guy named John sometime in the AD 90s who was in exile on the island of Patmos to seven churches that he loved and that Jesus gave him a message for, the the letter that was sent to those seven churches is not only for them, it's for the whole church. It's for all of Jesus Christ's church. And so this week and next week, we're looking at two of those messages, two individual churches that are found in Revelation chapter two and three. And today, as we heard from Lauren reading, we are looking at the message to the church at Pergamum. And what we saw as she read this, if you were paying close attention, is that pretty quickly, the message from Jesus to the church in Pergamum gets weird. The next time we preach Revelation, that's my vote for the title of the series. It's about to get weird. (laughs) Because that is what we are going to see over and over and over again as we dive into this book week after week. Is It's just on initial reading, you're like, that's weird. But my hope is by the time we're out of here, we have a, a sufficient understanding of what we think Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum that actually we're like, no, that's not weird. And actually more than that, what Jesus said to the church in Pergamum 1,900 years ago actually matters for us today. It actually means something to us today. And so I want us to get three things out of this passage as we dive into it today. This is the first one. Jesus sees our struggle. Jesus sees our struggle. So we're going to skip over verse 12 just for, because I wanted to, because I want to talk about verse 13. So meet me in verse 13. This is what Jesus says, the first words of his message through John to the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, 
told you it was going to get weird. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. What is the first thing that Jesus says to those people in the church at Pergamum 1900 years ago? I see you. I see you. I know where you live. I know where you dwell. And for us to understand what that means is we need a little bit of historical context. So Pergamum was arguably the most important city in Asia Minor in the AD 90s, modern day Turkey. It was a center of economic, religious, and political activity. It was built on a hill and there were literally dozens of temples all over the city of Pergamum. There were temples to Greek gods like Zeus and Athena. There were temples to Egyptian gods. And at the top of the hill, the temple at the top, there was a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor, not a god, not a like false, like made up anything. The real guy, there was a temple where you went to worship the Roman emperor. So for those in Pergamum who called themselves followers of Jesus, they were in it. They were in a very difficult place to live as a follower of Jesus Christ because in order, and we'll talk a little bit about, more about this in a little bit, but in order to be kind of fully accepted socially into the city, economically into the city, there was an expectation that you were gonna worship the gods that the city worshiped. And as we talked about two weeks ago with John, who's in exile in Patmos, probably in exile because he was not willing to bow his knee to Caesar as a god. If you were not willing to hike up that hill and bow your knee to Caesar Augustus as God, that was considered an act of treason. So there were a lot of political ramifications if you were in the church of Pergamum in the first century AD and you could not bow your knee to any other God except Jesus Christ. They were in it. And then Jesus says, I see where you live. And the next thing he says, where Satan's throne is. Now, does that literally mean that Satan had a throne in Pergamum? Like, you know, head over to 666 Hades Street, Pergamum, Turkey, and that's where you'll find the headquarters for the Satan's army on. Probably not. But here's what it is saying. For those people in the church at Pergamum, it felt like Satan was on the throne. It felt like they lived in the place where Satan was the one who was in charge. And here comes Jesus. And the first thing he says to them is what? I see your struggle. I know, I know what it is like for you. I know you are living in the place where it feels like Satan dwells. And in fact, you, you have seen it because he talks about Antipas. And that, those, that phrase uh, right there in verse 13 where it says, my faithful witness in Greek, that's the same word as martyr. You had someone, and maybe more than one, but he calls out Antipas by name. You had someone among you who was killed for their faith in me. And what does he tell them? I see your struggle and you've done what? You've held fast. He's like, you're doing great. I know that it is hard. I know that it is costing you something. I know that it is, there is a sacrifice associated with you claiming that I am Lord of your life in the place that you are living. I see your struggle. But do you notice what he doesn't say? What if I'm, in the, if I'm a member of the church at Pergamum in AD 90, whatever, I'm hoping he says, he doesn't say, I see your struggle and I'm gonna get you out of it. All he tells him is, I see where you live. I know what it is like. Uh, our oldest is 13. She is a remarkable child. I consider that genetics. <laughs> Dad jokes all day long. Um, 
when she was, she was our firstborn, obviously, when she was born, uh, she was a terrible sleeper. And for those of you who have kids, you know the cry of a newborn is horrible. With the first child, it's horrible because you love them so much. With two, three, and four, it's just annoying, right? <laughs> Keep it real. And so because she was our first, and because we loved her so much, and because her cry was so horrific to our ears, and we, just, we didn't want her to suffer, we didn't want her to have to deal with anything hard, Everything in us wants to soothe her, wanted to soothe her when she cried. And the problem was she would wake up three, four, five, six, seven times a night and cry. And for the, the first nine months of her life, that happened. And every night, Beth or I, Beth, would go down the hall and take her out of her crib and sing to her and bounce her and soothe her and give her her plug back and give her food and then put her back in her crib once she fell asleep. And it was just like over and over and over. And nine months into it, we're like, we're not going to make it because apparently adults need sleep. And so uh, Beth was talking to the pediatrician and the pediatrician was like, you need to let her cry it out. And I, I used this illustration one time in a, a, lo- a different church. And afterwards, I got an email from someone who was like a, someone in child health care. And she was like, there's a lot of research that says crying it out is not the right thing to do. And so I am not giving you parenting advice, okay? <laughs> I am not a doctor. I, I went to seminary, okay? This is just what we were told and what worked for us. And so the idea of crying it out is like, she was like, you have to let her learn to soothe herself so that she'll go back to sleep without expecting you always to come in and rescue her every time she wakes up and wants something. And so I don't know if you've ever been to hell on earth, but we went <laughs> for about three nights in our house. And you know, this, this precious nine-month-old is losing her mind in her room four, five, six times a night, and Beth and I are physically restraining each other from going in there because it's like, we got to let her learn how to, how to work this out herself. And it was awful, and it was terrible, and as a parent, everything in you just wants to go in there and, and make it all right. And by the third night, our, our oldest is in there just losing her mind, and my precious wife is sitting on the floor outside the door of her room, listening to her cry, weeping herself. She saw her in her struggle, but she didn't take her out. And I don't know what you are going through today. I know what some of you are going through, but I don't know what a lot of you are going through today. And for some of us in this room this morning, it feels like Satan is on the throne. It feels like we dwell where Satan is, is, is the one who's in charge. And, and you just need to hear this morning that Jesus sees you. Because it may not feel like it. It may not feel like Jesus is on the throne right now, but he sees you in your struggle. That is the beautiful message of verse 13 of Revelation chapter two. And I just, my encouragement to all of us this morning is when we are in those seasons of life where we are like, how long, Lord? Where are you? Why are you not ending this? Could it be possible that he is sitting right outside the door as we cry ourselves to sleep crying right along with us. But in some way, because his ways are higher than ours and our thoughts are high, his thoughts are higher than ours, he knows that what we are in right now in some way is for our good. And, and some of us are going through things right now that it's like, I couldn't even possibly reconcile that what I am going through and God's goodness could somehow be related. But he knows more than we do. 
And he knows that we need to be developed. We need to grow. We need to be changed. Our faith needs to grow. And I hope someone this morning will take encouragement from the fact that whatever you are sitting in right now, wherever you are dwelling right now, Jesus sees you in that struggle. And just because he doesn't take you out of it does not mean he is not still on the throne. So that's the first thing we see in this letter. And part of me is like, we should just end it on that and go home. But there's more. Jesus sees, sees you in your struggle. Second thing, that we see in this, uh, second thing that we see in this passage is that it is tempting to compromise. I had a lot of words I wanted to add to that, like it is so tempting to compromise. It is very tempting to compromise. It is always tempting. If you're taking notes, you can add all those words that you want along with it. But for simplicity's sake, the next two verses, the main idea is it is tempting to compromise. So let's continue working through this message of Jesus to the church at Pergamum. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. So it's like, remember when I said this is going to get weird? Here we go. Because it's like Jesus is, is like, you're doing great. I see how hard it is. You've held fast to me. And now he's like, but you're not doing perfect. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, we just, we need some, some, uh, some information to understand what's going on there. So the story of Balaam is in the Old Testament. It's in Numbers 22 through 24. Encourage you when you get home today and you're like, that was such a rich time at church. I just want to read my Bible. You can read Numbers 22 through 24. Uh, We don't have time to go into the whole story, but the nation of Israel is wandering through the desert. The king of Moab, that is a nation in the ancient Near East, not the outdoor enthusiasts, capital city of Utah. Uh, The king of Moab hires this prophet named Balaam to pronounce curses on Israel because they're scared of Israel. They've heard about him. They heard about their God. And every time Balaam tries to pronounce curses, God doesn't let him, and he pronounces a blessing instead. He devises a plan to use the women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel into relationships with them, and then to worship the gods of Moab. God sends a plague. It's a disaster for Israel. And the point is, Balaam becomes paradigmatic in the Old Testament. He's mentioned a ton of times. He becomes the paradigm for those who lead God's people astray. For those who who lead God's people away from Yahweh and into sin and compromise. And no one is exactly sure who the Nicolaitans are. You want to say Nicolaitans, but the I comes before the T. No one's quite sure who the Nicolaitans are. Most scholars think they were some kind of sect or cult in Pergamum who were not like radically opposed to God, but who were teaching Jesus plus. Basically, they think the message of the Nicolaitans was Jesus is who he said he was, he's God, you know, he can save you, and sin is not that big of a deal, which is not the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus is that sin is kind of a big deal, and so Jesus is saying, you've done really good, but you're compromising. You're being led astray. Uh, You have one foot in my kingdom and one foot in the kingdom of the world. Uh, the clue actually comes in the, the, the name Balaam in Hebrew and the word Nicolaitans in Greek mean essentially the same thing, which is to conquer the people. It's the idea of tricking. And so Jesus is saying, you're doing well, but you're compromising. You're, you're being enticed to do things that are not from me and are not the things that I would call you to do. You are bowing your knee to more than just me. 
And how does he say they're doing it? By eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And let me just break those down real quick. So most scholars believe that in Pergamum in the first century, uh, there were a bunch of trade guilds, which it's not a one-to-one comparison, but think about a union. Like every occupation had their own social uh, employment group. And so if you were a mason and you wanted to work as a mason, you had to be part of the mason's trade guild. If you were a carpenter and you wanted to work as a carpenter, you had to be part of the carpenter's trade guild. Uh, If you were a financial advisor and you wanted to work as a financial advisor, you had to be part of the financial advisor's trade guild. All the trade guilds had um, gods, had their like... uh, pet god or whatever you want to call it that, that was the god of their trade guild and multiple times a year they would have festivals, work conferences, where everyone who was part of that guild would come, they would sacrifice animals to their patron god and then they would have a barbecue with the animals that they just sacrificed to their patron god. And so when Paul in like, I can't remember first or second Corinthians is like, you know, let's not make a huge deal out of food sacrifice to idols. Here in Revelation, that's not the message. Jesus is like, we're gonna make a huge deal out of food sacrifice to idols because by, by doing that, you are compromising your faith in me. But that was a real challenge for those people. Why? Because you couldn't have a job if you didn't join the trade guilds. And so they were having to choose. Do I sacrifice? Do I eat food sacrifice to idols and have a job and provide for my family? Or do I... Hold fast to what I say I believe about Jesus Christ. And then as far as sexual immorality, in some ways that's probably literal, but most scholars would say that in the context of Revelation, where the kingdom of heaven is pitted against the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the world is personified by a city, which is Babylon, which we'll get there in the coming weeks, and Babylon is called the harlot. And then when we look at the Old Testament, and the Revelation is just saturated with allusions to the Old Testament. When we look at the Old Testament and we see that God's number one description for Israel's sin is what? An unfaithful wife. This is probably lit- in some sense literally sexual immorality, but, but most scholars would say actually it's bigger than that. This is spiritual infidelity. It's spiritual unfaithfulness. And so Jesus is saying, you're doing good. You live in a really hard place. You are do- making a lot of sacrifices for the sake of me and my name and my kingdom. But you got one foot in my kingdom and you got one foot in the world. You're, you're compromising. And what does he say about that? I have this against you. Now, were some of the people in the church in Pergamum like being tricked? Was it that they thought Balaam's teaching and the Nicolaitans' teaching sounded good and right and, and they just kind of followed into bad theology, maybe? And were some just blatantly walking away from God? Probably. But it doesn't matter to Jesus. He lumps them all together because we're all responsible for our compromises. Uh, I told, I used this in the first service and I was like, this is hypothetical. If it has happened to any of you, please let me know so that I can actually say this really happened to somebody. And after the service, someone came up to me and was like, that happened to me. Imagine that you were driving in your car and you were in a place that you didn't know and you were following a GPS, a Garmin or your phone or the GPS system in your car. And imagine it gave you the speed limit for the road that you were driving on, but it was wrong. So let's say the speed limit says on your GPS 55 and you're doing 60, just to be conservative. And a cop car comes out behind you, cruiser comes out behind you, lights on, pulls you over, window down, policeman comes up, Mr. Anderson, well, he would say Reverend Anderson because I'm ordained, (laughs) but do you know why I pulled you over? Uh, And honestly, the answer is no, I don't know. And he'll say, well, you were speeding. And I'll be like, well, five miles, you know, 16 to 55 hardly feels like speeding. 
And what if he's like, no, the speed limit's 35. And then I'm like, but my GPS told me it was 55. What's he going to say? Oh, I'm so sorry for the mistake. <laughs> Please don't tell my supervisor. Have a nice day. No, what's he going to say? Here's your ticket. And you're in like suspended license territory. I don't know what that, what that number is, but even though I got bad information, I'm still responsible for my compromise. Even though it looked like I was doing the right thing and felt like I was doing the right thing, it's still on me. And that should give us great pause today. I don't want to be bad cop, but part of being a preacher is bad cop sometimes. That should give us great pause because we live in a city that is full of temples. We live in a city that is full of temples. Temples to football and soccer and hockey. And I love basketball, and sometimes I wish there was a temple to basketball here. But there are temples to healthcare and to finance and to development. There are, there are temples to fitness. There are temples to art. There are temples to music. And all of those temples are preaching into our lives, saying, you can have me. You can have God and me. You, I will give you joy. I will make you happy. You can have God plus you can have God plus football. You can have God plus your job. You can have God plus your kids. You can have God plus whatever. And you know what Jesus is saying? Homie, don't play that. There is one king, and he is on the throne, and we have one knee that can bow, and if it's not bowed to Jesus, it's bowed to something else. And even though there are so many things that the kingdom of this world, that the city of Babylon offer us that looks like that is good and right and my heart wants it, Jesus is like, I am calling you to something higher. And this is where the rubber meets the road because if we think back to Aaron Ralston, we may have to give up good things that we think we love in order to wholly follow Jesus with our lives. And the, the only way we can do that is the third thing that I want us to draw out of this text and it is this. Jesus' message to the church at Pergamum and to us is this. Play the long game. Play the long game. So just let's continue now through the rest of the, the passage. Pick me up in verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is Jesus saying to those people at the church in Pergamum and to us? Play the long game. I see where you live. I see where you dwell, and it feels like Satan is the one who is on the throne. I know it is hard. I know you are having to make sacrifices. I know you are suffering for the sake of my name, but it is not always going to be like this. And what does he say? How does he say it? He says, I will come to you soon. That's it. That's how we kicked off this whole series. That's the vision of the shore. He is coming back. And the way things look right now is not the way it will always be. And what does he say in these two verses about when he comes back, where we might find ourselves? There are two options. The first is this. He will war against us with the sword of his mouth. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but that's not the better option. Or to the one who conquers. And how do you conquer? It's right here in the text, first two words of verse 16. Therefore, repent. To the one who conquers by repenting, 
I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I don't really know what that stuff means. I have an idea. We'll talk about it in a minute. I don't care. I want that one. I'll take the hidden manna and the white stone over the sword of Jesus' mouth a hundred times out of a hundred. Hear his message. I know it's hard. I know this life is not easy. I know I call you to do hard things and give up things that you think are good and right and things that you want in your life, but you can play a longer game because you know that the way things look right now, what is right in front of your face right now is not the way that it will always be. And we know that we can do this because we do it all the time. I have seen you do it. How did you get through Vanderbilt? For those of you who got it through Vanderbilt. How did you get through college? Because you had a vision of the long game because you knew that there was gonna be some short-term pain and suffering that was gonna pay off in the end. Pain now, pay off in the end. How did you make it through basic training? How did you make it through med school? How did you make it through two-a-days, football two-a-days, or field hockey two-a-days in 100-degree heat in August? Short-term pain for long-term payoff. How did you carry a child inside of you for nine months and then labor and deliver that child? Short-term pain, long-term payoff. How did you make it through chemo? How did you make it through marriage counseling? How did Aaron Ralston cut off his own arm? The answer is the same in every situation because they, had, they were playing the long game because you were playing the long game because you knew that you could, you could experience short-term sacrifice, pain, and suffering because there was a payoff at the end and that is Jesus' message to us today. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is a call to lay down our lives for the sake of him and his gospel. And that means we are going to sacrifice some things in this life. We are not going to get everything that we want. There are going to be times where we think he should do something for us and he doesn't do it. And his message to every one of us in here today is play the long game. I am coming back someday and it will not always look this way. And so for the disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago and we're going to keep talking about it in the book of Revelation and probably every book that we ever preach out of the Bible. Our lives should look different than those who are around us. The call to Jesus Christ is a call to a life that looks radical to the world around us. To follow Jesus means we actually choose to sacrifice. So that means that we might actually demote ourselves at work. Like actually choose to take a lesser, lower job because it allows us to be home more or it allows us to lean more fully into what we think God has called us to do in ministry and in the rest of our life. That is radical. The world has no context for that. Some of us, that might mean that we actually downsize. Downsize our house, downsize our car, downsize our closet because that actually frees up resources for the kingdom of God and for his uh, ministry in this world and that actually is gonna pay off huge dividends in the long game. For some followers of Jesus Christ, that might actually mean, and this is, this is going to blow your mind, we might actually use a dumb phone. We might actually choose not to use a smartphone because either we can't handle it or we look at it too much or it's messing up our lives to the extent that actually we would be better off and better servants of his if we didn't have it in our lives. And the world looks at that and is like, that is insane. Because the, the call of Jesus Christ is a call to play the long game. Because the really real, the reframing of reality is that the way things look and feel and smell and taste and touch right now is not the way they are always going to be. So let's just 
go home on this. Um, there are a lot of ideas about what it means that to the one who conquers, Jesus is going to give the hidden manna and the white stone with a name written on it. And we could spend a lot of time breaking down what all the ideas are about that. But this is my favorite one. There are uh, a lot of scholars who think that in the Roman judicial system, at the time that that revelation was written, uh, when people served as judges or jurors in trials, uh, they were given a black stone and a white stone, and that is the way that they pronounced judgment on whoever was being tried. And you can probably guess what the black stone meant, guilty. The white stone meant not guilty, acquitted. And so here's what I love, I just love about the way this passage plays out is Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he did not do himself. Jesus shed his divinity. He stepped down from heaven. He took on human form, the form of an infant. He lived the life of a homeless, itinerant preacher. Most of his life he was criticized, cursed, and run out of town if they didn't try to kill him before they did that. And then he died a common criminal's death on a cross, even though he is the only one in human history who never committed a crime. And he did it because he was playing the long game. Short-term pain and suffering. Short-term sacrifice for a long-term payoff. And what was that long-term payoff? That you and I would one day stand before the judge of all the earth. And though we are guilty, as guilty as guilty can be, the judgment would come down as a white stone. Not guilty. Acquitted because of what Jesus Christ did in our place on the cross. He sees your suffering. He knows how easy it is to compromise. And his call in our lives is to play the long game. May we live in community. May we live in discipleship groups to the level that we are helping each other play the long game. Because we get so consumed by what is right in front of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and for this time and once again for your word and we thank you for this beautiful and crazy and weird book called Revelation um, which actually means so much for us and for our lives here on this earth. God, may you empower us to do what you have called us to do in this text that we might see our compromises. We have all done them and may we repent, turn away from them, turn to you and may we help each other to do the same. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.